This is the observance night, and uh, I've returned from my travels, as you can see, and uh, it's been over two months, and uh, I'm a bit, uh, you know, seems uh, familiar and strange at the same time. I've been to, you know, many places uh, kind of constantly traveling and, um, for two months and uh, all very pleasant and uh, enjoyable and in five countries staying in many hotels and unfortunately this time the they people in us were well off, so we stayed in very posh hotels. <laughs> and as you get my age, you appreciate <laughs> that. <clears throat> Meet many people, and uh, of course, it's in uh, Thailand, I'm very well known, so. There, there's uh, entered Thailand. We cut in and out of Thailand several times, and and there was always a enormous amount of uh, people to meet, people to see. Though in uh, in Bhutan, for example, was, uh, nobody knows who I am, and we were, it's a very contained place. Um, Called, they're generally referred to as the Shangri-La, and it is a you know beautiful country. So spending 16 days in this uh, lovely place was uh, a pleasure. Ajanyanarato, of course, uh, Ajahn Amaro and and Richard Smith and Edward Lewis. They're all uh, compatible. <coughs> there were no. Uh, I didn't notice any, anyway, personal frictions or difficulties. <clears throat> so it makes it very pleasant to be traveling with, with people that, you know, you, you aren't having any kind of personal difficulties with. Uh, and so the enjoyment of just a very beautiful Buddhist country. <clears throat> and it's... Uh, uh, of the uh, you know the Himalayan kingdom, so it 
it follows the kind of Vajrayana, Mahayana style. And uh, I noticed that they, that they said the Dalai Lama has never, never been to Bhutan. And I also picked up that there's kind of a prejudice against Galupas there. There are no Galupa monks, or monasteries anyway. It's Nyingmapa and Kagyu. And it seems to be, you know, there seems to be some kind of uh, prejudice or bias. These are cultural things. It's like in Thailand, Tamayuk Mahanikai, or whatever you've got. You know, you've got these various uh, prejudices towards other groups. But it wasn't anything violent or nasty, it's just surprising to me who, who don't, you know, didn't know very much about the situation there. <coughs> because to me, uh, Tibetan Buddhism all looks pretty much the same. I don't don't know all the subtle differences and details. But they obviously don't like to be referred to as Tibetan Buddhists. There's a very, very strong national sense being uh, Bhutanese. And uh, very lovely kind of architecture. Even the farmhouses are quite beautiful in the villages and have quite a lovely uh, style of farmhouse. I've never seen anywhere, not even in Tibet. And it is, you know, mainly Buddhist, with Buddhist king. And uh, it's been a country that's tried to preserve its, uh, its uh, culture so it's been very careful about modernization. And uh, now they're beginning to let tourists in, the foreigners, that even, well, I think, 30 years ago, they, you couldn't go there. It was forbidden. Well, the king seems to be quite wise king because he, he's obviously... Uh, as the welfare of the people in view, doesn't want the kind of rapid uh, kind of jumping into Western uh, Westernization like Thailand has done. So they're kind of going gradually, and they've just recently allowed uh, television and things like that. They don't even have, they didn't even have television several years ago. <coughs> Of course, when you're you're just riding on a, you know, in a in a group with a tourist, it's uh, it's quite pleasant. We've traveled from the very western border to the eastern border of Bhutan, and even though it's not very big country, it's very mountainous. So the road has absolutely no straight places in it. In fact, the airport is. Uh, in a place called Para, which is uh, near the western border to India. And uh, it's not a very long airfield, actually. Uh, but it's the flattest place they have in Bhutan. And it takes several hours to drive from there to uh, Timpu, which is the capital city, or it's really a town.
the uh, you know it's a very hospitable and uh, beautiful place so they uh, you know just have these uh, experiences the pleasant memories of it in fact most of the time as a way I have I don't have any really unpleasant memories nothing unpleasant happened except having to wait eight hours in Rangoon Airport but that was that wasn't all that difficult I've noticed that, that uh, the power of the meditation you know just being able to to stay in an empty state to to uh, you know have a have that grounding of awareness so one is not you know just caught in the in the uh, impingement of the uh, experiences that that one is having <coughs> because it's uh, you know you're going from Bhutan then to Delhi then to Bhutan and then back to India and then to Thailand, Cambodia and then to Burma and back to Thailand to Chiang Mai and then back to Bangkok and then here <laughs> all in two months and so there's this constant movement and uh, and impingement on the on the senses uh, which is going on all the time no matter if you're just staying here or traveling it, it, the thing I experience was get physically quite tired and uh, and being old is, uh, you know, when it doesn't have the the resilience, the energy of youth. Uh, the uh, trip to Bur the Cambodia. I've been there s several times. This is just to Angkor Wat, and uh, and they have a direct flight now from Bangkok to Siem Reap. So they even have an airline, Siem Reap Air. So this is, you know, Siem Reap has become a very sought-after uh, tourist attraction. And they have about 70, you know, big posh hotels there accommodate all the tourists. Uh, and I went there the first time in 1965 uh, before I ordained. And of course, it was provincial town, uh, and uh, you know it wasn't really well known for tourism yet. And then during that time, of course, it went through the the Holocaust of the Khmer Rouge, and well, and now it's it's uh, it's highly developed as a uh, attraction for tourists. But the uh, temples and buildings themselves are so utterly beautiful that uh, this does, they have not ruined it in any way. Uh, it is stunning. Each time, each time I go to there, it's, uh, it's, uh, I feel get more from it. The first time, of course, it, you were just, uh, I was, uh, you know, 
didn't know very much about it and uh, just uh, travel on bicycle and and uh, and I had very little you know I wa- very little money at the time so it's all doing things as inexpensively as possible second time was with Sister Bodhi Parla too uh, when we spent a month in uh, Cambodia and we, we were only there uh, two days this time it was a week and uh, we had plenty of time to to visit and uh, we had a good guide a Cambodian young Cambodian who uh, could speak very good English <coughs> but this was uh, you know a magnificent uh, area of uh, temples and uh, libraries buildings like that that were built for you know, by the Khmer civilization about a thousand years ago. And they used stone uh, and incredible architecture and uh, decoration and, and art. Aesthetics were marvelous because the Khmer civilization at one time was very spread all over that area from Vietnam to uh, Thailand and... and uh, there's just, uh, you know, you still see Khmer ruins in, like in Korat or in Surin in Thailand. I spent six months in, the, in Sukhuna Korn province, which is quite far north, uh, uh, where in a place that was, uh, uh, used to be, I uh, had a, uh, the ruins of a Cambodian uh, Khmer stupa. So it's always interesting to reflect on the ruined civilizations or things of the past, especially on when they're built on such a grand scale, uh, and yet out of stone, something that seems so strong and permanent and solid as as those stone ruins of of those temples are. Uh, Angerwat itself is is a quite good shape and. They've, they've kept it, you know, so they did the, they've been also an, an, a UNESCO sites, so that they've restored a lot of it, trying to put the, the puzzle back together. It's amazing what archaeologists, people involved with that can do. Uh, it, it seemed to be, you know, a mixture of Hinduism and Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, and uh, then Theravada finally came in, but uh, there were all these, these familiar symbols of uh, Shiva and, and uh, Parvati and, and uh, so forth of the various Hindu pantheon. And, uh, and then for a while Buddhism would come in and dominate and then they'd, the next king would be Hindu and destroy all the Buddhist images. So in one place, one temple, there it was a temple built for for Buddhists, and they had, you know, empty niches all over the place, and and where they deca- where they took out all the the Buddha's images, the king that came in after, trying to destroy the Buddhism. 
And so there's various, way, various ways of, of either totally destroying the image or cutting the head off or doing something like that. So it's just a, you can see that the, uh, the problems of being human and the, the uh, even though these religions are based on, on uh, you know, a wisdom foundation, the actual way that, that human beings tend to relate to each other is very much through grasping, uh, being, having prejudices, strong views, and, and fighting, quarreling, competing with each other. As we know very well here in the in the European side, <coughs> but also it's very you know in spite of all that Cambodia has been through, you see the the monks on Bindabat and so forth. So this is always being a Buddhist monk myself, you know, impressed by. This, this thread of the Sangha that seems to sustain itself even though all the temples fall down, the Buddha Rupas are destroyed and uh, temporarily annihilated uh, this, this, uh, these human beings, shaven-headed monks in hoka robes they still carry on in some way or another it's the thing that gets carried on from one generation to the next even though the very civilizations and and uh, great manifestations of devotion and that can can uh, arise and flourish and then degenerate or are destroyed. So it's a very good thing the Buddha didn't establish a religion based on a lot of symbols and and. Uh, ceremonies and, and various conventions that uh, can easily be only survive under certain cultural conditions but the uh, power of the Sangha is that it survives uh, through the rise and fall of all these various empires kingdoms and flourishing prospering developing and then degenerating this whole Enicca, the rising ceasing, this is uh, what the Buddha is pointing to and the, the, you know, this reflection, continuous reflection on the, the way it is in terms of the conditioned realm. And same in, in uh, Burma, we, we went to Rangoon uh, and this is the first time I've ever been in Burma. So. The, um, we spent uh, a few hours at the magnificent Shwedagon Pagoda we uh, never seen anything like that uh, and a grand magnificent complex of, uh, of uh, stupas and temples very elegant and very very beautiful and uh, a, a kind of continuous devotion going on uh, they have the the religion in in the even though the government is a is a tyrannical one dictatorship uh, and is definitely condemned and and uh, 
you know, vilified by the world. They, what seems to hold Burma together is its devotion, because the government, no matter how nasty it's been, has never persecuted Buddhism. So Buddhism has actually flourished quite well there. Uh, and uh, the kind of level of devotion the people there seem to have. And, and it's, uh, it is very much, uh, you know, poor country uh, compared to Thailand, which, you know, is a very affluent and highly developed modern country. Uh, Burma looks very like, it looks like Thailand did about 40 years ago. <laughs> And uh, it still, uh, you know, we just saw the, we went to, the first day we went to see this, uh, we drove for quite a few hours to, from from the uh, Rangoon airport to, to this place called Daitio, I think it's called, it's a, huge boulder kind of barely kind of balancing itself on a cliff and it's covered with gold it has a stoop on top it's enormous and it's kind of a very famous and to get up there you know it's quite a steep climb and they actually arranged to have us carried up in uh, in chairs <laughs> so this was This is a new experience for me, and uh, <coughs> we, uh, they had long bamboo poles and four men, <coughs> and then between these two poles there's a, a kind of like a deck chair, you know, one of these things you put on the beach, you know, and then <laughs> and kind of sit in there, and then these, these uh, incredible men young men pick up this thing and, and carry it up these street, a very steep climb and they're wearing just flip-flops and <laughs> and we were told by the guide you know that they'd already arranged uh, you know the price and that was all taken care of uh, and they said so these they said these carriers are going to ask for more and so we were warned ahead of time and they sh they definitely did every so often they say oh heavy heavy <laughs> we spent the night up there and uh, they we were the Thai group Thai uh, Mayor Pao who's uh, she's a supporter I've known long before I came to England and uh, she's about 75 and uh, very kind of generous uh, woman who's um, she's she helped she's the one that uh, kind of uh, when I was the abbot of Wat Nana Chat the uh, and we were just establishing it. It was, uh, we didn't have, uh, we just had uh, temporary building. 
and uh, we just had the kind of lean-tos with uh, dirt floors and and grass roofs and uh, bamboo benches and uh, so Mayor Bao was one of the wealthy Bangkok people that would, would go around looking for places, uh, poor monasteries to uh, support and she was very devoted to Lung Po Cha at the time so uh, he sent her to Wat Nana Chat, which at that time was, you know, only a few of us, a few monks there, and and uh, we lived in these very primitive conditions. Uh, there was, I think, the, we had a well, and we lived in. I had a bamboo hut. Then this kind of lean-to, which was a cellar, and. Uh, and the day they arrived, Mayor Bao arrived with, with two coachloads of of uh, Bangkok people. You know, it was in the dry season; hadn't rained for a month, and uh, so so that they um, these two coaches drove into Wat Nana Chat, and then they all they all left the coach, and it started raining, pouring rain. So all these people came rushing into this grass roof sala, you know, and they were crowding in there. It wasn't all that big. And uh, they started looking around and they said, these monks need a sala. <laughs> so in the Thai fashion, they started raising money right then. <laughs> so I knew, I knew we were going to probably have a nice sala soon. Uh, and that was Mayor Bao. She was... Uh, her husband was an Air Force general, so that uh, and they had a huge Thai Air Force base in in Ubon. But anyway, she was the one that invited us to. Uh, there was uh, 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 Ajahn Panyasaro and Jayanto and I, and uh, and another monk uh, from that is. Uh, Ajahn Ekata, who's a Thai monk, disciple of Ajahn Chah. So, uh, there's a group of Thai lay people, and we, and traveling with Thai people is always a lot of fun. Thai people know how to enjoy everything, so you always have a good time. Uh, and uh, we had. Uh, very enjoyable time <laughs> uh, at the Swedagon. Then we went to uh, Bagan, and that's quite far away. We've had to fly uh, to Bagan, and uh, there we stayed at the Bagan Golf Resort. <laughs> it's near the golf course. Very nice. <laughs> and Bagan is an um, amazing place because it, it was another uh, magnificent ruin. Uh, this whole plain is just filled with these, these uh, lovely, absolutely lovely pagodas and viharas. Uh, and the, that period, they, they used mainly brick. They must have been the best, the world's best bricklayers, because 
they could do anything with brick, you know, and that's not the, you know, making lotus flowers and all kinds of incredible uh, intricate designs in brick. And they, uh, and when you look out over the plain, it's very flat. Uh, there's, these, there's all these silhouettes of these lovely forms of these uh, thousands, thousands, literally thousands of temples, stupas, and 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 they also uh, have been restored. A lot of them because they had an earthquake about twenty, thirty years ago, and and what remained of them, a lot of them were quite badly damaged, but. Uh, They've been, it's also another UNESCO site. So we have a lot to thank UNESCO for. They do, they, they really help to uh, uh, preserve and restore these, uh, these places that might otherwise have just been disappeared in urbanization or misused in some way. Pangan must have been an enormous city at one time with all these thousands of temples there and uh, uh, you just feel this, uh, the grandeur of a Buddhist uh, civilization and of course uh, it's in the, on a plain and I think it's raided you know in the, it's between India and China and Thailand so there's all these these raiders coming in, even uh, the Mongolians came down and destroyed, destroyed it. And so there's a, you know, you read the history of Southeast Asia or Asia in general, it's a, just a continuous, you know, experience of, of uh, migration of populations and wars and uh, people struggling for dominance. So even though they built these these magnificent buildings, they would easily get destroyed. But still, the uh, in the ruins of these temples, there's still something, you know, beautiful and and uh, spiritual about it. And they, certainly, the the uh, mental state that I had in Lagan was certainly one of peaceful uh, contentment. And it was in Lagan that we heard about the, the tsunami earthquake in the Indian Ocean. Uh, and so we, we didn't feel anything there. But uh, we had uh, television in the we could watch in the hotel, so we watched the BBC World Service. And it was quite, you know, horrendous uh, what happened, what has happened there, with the, uh, you know, the, just this the enormous tidal wave uh, destroying so many countries and and uh, you know the shores of so many beautiful beaches and villages and it must have been utterly terrifying because it was on Boxing Day as you, as you no doubt know and, uh, and of course a place like Phuket in southern Thailand is a, 
is a kind of tropical paradise that um, is very much, you know, you go to, if you, it's your holiday, the, the thousands of Europeans go there at this time, the peak season. And it just sits all these these uh, these resorts just washed away. Of course, they're still trying to find all the bodies in India and in Sri Lanka and and in Thailand and and uh, Aceh and Sumatra. So when we got back to Thailand, of course, the, the Thailand immediately came forth an enormous amount of aid. And because uh, they have a good infrastructure, they've got the the structure, the infrastructures now, and the the facilities to deal with with uh, catastrophe quite well. But there's still, even when I left Thailand, there's still you know bodies are being washed up on the shore, rotting corpses. There is a I, when I gave the retreat in Chiang Mai, there is a young. Uh, woman who's, uh, she's half American, half Thai. And she'd been in uh, Phuket helping rescue these corpses and uh, for five days. And uh, she said it was absolutely horrible, you know, the stench of these rotting human corpses and just the, the continuous impingement on the senses through sight and smell was, uh, you know, five days was all, all she could handle. I noticed on the retreat, and she's just sitting there most of the time <laughs> trying to, to uh, deal, process the, the horror that she witnessed in, uh, in Phuket. So this is, uh, you know, in the Indian Ocean is a place that usually seems fairly safe. You know, you don't, it's not like the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic. And, you know, it's known for these lovely, um, you know, kind of, you go there on your holidays. You go for the, the beaches and the, the beauty. And all those, kind of like in, in Indonesia or... South India or Sri Lanka, Thailand, they're all, all that whole area is quite, you know, the, you know, you go there because you think it's safe. And this is, this is what I've noted, that, you know, nature itself is telling us, you know, there's no safe place on this planet. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a natural catastrophe, so, so there wasn't, you know, you couldn't blame it on anybody. People that believed in God were blaming it on God, things like that. Since we don't have that, we don't believe in God, we, we couldn't blame it on anybody. We just see that, the, you know, contemplate it in terms of, of the, the way it is, that conditioned realm. That's its nature, you know, it's changed. <coughs> And the response uh, worldwide has been amazing because it, it isn't a political problem. You know, it's not about one country attacking another or taking sides. It's, it's a 
human problem, you know, that we can all, in some way, sympathize with. You know, it's not taking sides on, on political issues or anything else. The human, the common human bond we all have with each other. Uh, because uh, natural catastrophe doesn't favor any particular group, you know. It's not choosing, picking and choosing the, the, the Christians or the Muslims or the Buddhists or the Americans or anything else. It just, you know, if it starts going, it just destroys whatever's around. So the universe we live in is, you know, the sun, sankara, the, the sankara is, is its very nature, is this change. And that's why, you know, that we, the Buddhists emphasize this reflection, this continuous reflection on impermanence. Because if we you know, and, and anatta became, you know, it's so clear once you've had that insight that there is no self, there's no separateness in self. There's only changing condition. And the, uh, in, the, in uh, nature itself, in, in Thai, they use the word for nature is Dhamma. So somehow in Thai, it's uh, because it's a Buddhist culture, uh, when they talk about nature, they talk about, they use the word Dhamma. Where for many of us in the, in the Western world, we always associate nature as, as something out there. Uh, you know, like something you go and commune with. You don't, you don't, you know, I never really felt a part of nature till I started practicing meditation. Never, never really understood the, that this is a natural condition, this human body. Nature was something God created or that was separate out there that you related to as an object. In the Thai language, of course, you you don't have that because Buddhism doesn't create that division, and even in in its language, because it uses Pali or Buddhist language, then it the language it uses doesn't doesn't convey that sense of division or separateness. But in uh, Let's see the results of meditating. There is more and more that the the obvious reality is that mindfulness is a, is a natural state. Mindfulness is not we aren't creating mindfulness. So when you try to create mindfulness as something you do, you know, to try to practice and get mindfulness, it, that in itself is missing the point. Isn't it? It's a natural state of being. So it, it, the attitude isn't one of attaining or trying to 
become mindful, but recognizing, realizing, here and now. Remembering. So that you, you know, you, you're opening, receiving, you're, you're going, you're recognizing, realizing the true nature that you, that's not created or compounded through awareness. So that's why in, in the anatta, the reflection on anatta or no self, to, because we do, we are, we're so attached, we're so, you know, thoroughly conditioned to, to um, operate from a sense of being separate in a self, a person, separate person. <coughs> because that's the way it seems, that's the way the culture conditions us, that's how it, it you know, it, we're program to, to see it in, in these fixed ways. So in awareness we're actually deleting these fixations, letting go of these delusions. <coughs> so in just, uh, you know, in your own experience it, you know, it, you can't, if you can't create, you know, there's nothing to create, there's nothing to do. So, it's, it's this surrender, this um, opening, this receptivity, uh, Letting go, that those kind of words convey in this way of mindfulness. Well, the danger also is conceiving, you know, because we have a word for it, and then we define it in some way, describe it in some way. We're looking for something, or we have views about mindfulness, but you know, you realize that any view about it or about yourself is, is impermanent and not self. So what's left if there's no self and there's nothing to do, nothing to get, nothing to become, nothing to attain? And then, of course, it's easy to grasp those words and get into a kind of despairing state. <coughs> That's not it. It's not the grasping of any of either positive or negative perceptions, but of recognizing, realizing. And this is what the Third Noble Truth is all about, isn't it? It's a realizing, cessation, absence, nothing but a pure awareness. That awareness, what is it or who is it that recognizes the cessation? the absence. So it can be rather terrifying too because uh, you know if one is, is invested a lot in being somebody then it 
you know, it's a, Buddhism isn't exactly the teaching you want to hear. <laughs> uh, or, you know, you, you'd like it to be, a, you know, attaining kind of religion where, you know, you work hard and you get, a, you get rewarded for it. Uh, and, you know, like going to university or <coughs> getting uh, honors in, in, in the world. But in, in actual uh, Buddha Dhamma, the Buddha was pointing to as the way of liberation was not in through attaining, but through awakening. The Buddhist teachings then are, you know, they're very skillful means on a on a conventional level of conditioned phenomena, the, like the Four Noble Truths, is a very skillful teaching. Uh, and so it, and that's why it's still useful, why it's still, you know, why it isn't, uh, isn't, it isn't about a culture. It's not a condition, it's not about becoming anything, but awakening and recognizing, starting with the first noble truth, which is a very ordinary experience, isn't it, of suffering, discontentment, dis-ease, dissatisfaction, and pursuing that till you, you know, recognize, awakening to that till you realize the causes and the let and the insight into letting go to realize cessation. So cessation in this case isn't like annihilation, isn't annihilating. It's not, you know, Buddhism is not a metaphysical approach. So you're not or you're not trying to to state the ultimate reality by defining it, it's uh, it's realizing it, ultimate reality through awakening. And uh, the skillfulness of it is that one, if you try to define ultimate reality, you end up in <coughs> in speculating. Uh, you know, and the, you get too caught up in, in trying to define or try to explain too much of what you mean. The 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 Buddha Dhamma is, is you know the ultimate the the nibbana is not a not what you can explain it's what you can recognize liberation isn't something you can describe really it's to be realized the budget tongue Atidiko, Akaliko, Ehipasko, Opanaiko, Bajitang, Vetidapo, we knew that to be realized individually. So, in all these places, in, in India and in uh, Bhutan, especially in Bhutan, Thailand, Cambodia, Myanmar, as it's now called. These are all, you know, Buddhist, uh, based on Buddhist uh, 
teachings. So they have, you know, I think all of us find Buddhist countries very appealing. You know, I've certainly enjoyed my life in Thailand and uh, the whole atmosphere of, uh, of uh, Buddhist cultures, Buddhist countries is one that I personally quite uh, enjoy. I'm very grateful for having had the opportunity to to uh, have such a have such an opportunity really to to uh, go to all these exotic places and uh, contemplate reflect and the uh, meet people uh, and, and but I'm very glad to be back here actually. <laughs> Because uh, you really don't have to go anywhere. <clears throat> of course, in any how many people in Buddhist countries really understand about the insight into the Dhamma? I wouldn't say very many. <laughs> because in, in, it is it's so utterly simple and yet the subtlety of it in that when we're so highly conditioned to be complicated, make everything difficult, compound every moment, uh, hold on, carry things around in our minds, you know, just hold grudges and, and have strong views and opinions, prejudices, preferences about this and that, politics, religion, class, race, gender, and even in the Buddhist world, have strong views about who is the most right or who is the pure form, and and all this. This is uh, this is all a result of of being attached to conditioned phenomena. So even when you're attached to Buddhist conditions, it's still not liberating. <laughs> you know, becoming a Buddhist and and attaching to all, you know, adopting all the Buddhist uh, terminology and values and whatnot is still not liberating because these are conventions, they're sankharas. And yet, this is what uh, ignorance really is, isn't it? The, the conditioned realm that we identify with. And that's why uh, the Buddha means awakening, awakened one. It's wake, awakening out of that whole condition, conditioning of, that we get through our culture. The cultural conditioning, the, the, the sense of an individual self, 
the attachment to memories, attachment to views about right and wrong, good and bad, out of this ignorance. So then, it, you know, it's just, uh, you know, just trying to become good is better than, you know, certainly this is like truism, but it's better than, than uh, you know, being bad. At least, you know, being good, you, you're more liable to experience more happiness that way, worldly happiness. But in, in uh, the, the liberation comes through awakening. So, awakening is a very imminent natural act. That is nothing, nothing, it's not an attained state. But to really awaken is, uh, because it's so easy to, once you're conditioned, to just be caught in the momentum of habit. And then habits are what you're used to, even if they're bad habits. Even if you know they're bad habits, they're still easy to do because you're, you are used to those. Even though you, you might be doing something or thinking something you know is wrong or bad or unhealthy, it's still easier to do it because you're used to it. Being used to it, habituated, addicted. So in the Buddha Dhamma challenges everything. You know, there's nothing to hang on to, is it? Nothing to grasp. No safety. It's like the tsunami, you know. All these seemingly safe places, Boxing Day, Day After Christmas, Phuket Island, the ultimate seaside resort, <clears throat> that thousands and thousands of Europeans went to to enjoy their great holiday of the year. <clears throat> Lying in the sun in the most safe, peaceful, comfortable place in the whole world. <laughs> and then what happens? This enormous, gigantic tidal wave comes in. And they say, you couldn't even tell. You know, it looked fairly calm and then suddenly it just appeared out of this this relative calmness and this gigantic wave, uh, you know, most people couldn't even get away. You know, people, lucky ones, could could run from it. But it was so unexpected, so you know, shocking. One was not, there was no warning. Sangsara is like that, isn't it? It's uh, when death comes, and the sudden death, violent death, is, is a possibility that we all, you know, are aware of. Being hit by a car, whatever. So awakening is, you know, the, like the first noble truth, awakening to suffering is before anything really that bad happens. You know, this, you know, one time 
and Nanachat. You know, I'm not even going to say Amravati is a safe place because who knows what might happen during this winter's retreat. <laughs> One time at Nanachat, I was giving a, I was there uh, visiting and they wanted me to give a retreat. So I, it was about this time of the year and I started out saying, the first night I said, well, you're in a safe place, you know, no dangers here. Uh, you're good monks keeping the Vinaya. Uh, you can trust each other. So we just, you know, I went on in this vein describing the situation. And that night, there's a terrible cyclone hit the monastery. And, uh, and the Kutiazin is in the quite a strong, I was, it was frightening because even it was shaking and then uh, and we went over in the village in the morning and several houses had been blown down and a violent cyclone hit Wat Nanachat and Bungwai village. Uh, I, I'm not going to say that again. <laughs> because is there any really safe place and the uh, safe, then, then we reflect what is safe at this moment, not conceiving some safe place or some place that's safer than another. But right now, the only safe place is uh, in the awareness of this moment. <clears throat> because once you forget that, then you, you can be sitting in this relatively safe place and, and fall into a hell realm as you're probably well aware of. How many of you find winter retreats you fall into hell realms? Doubts, worries, resentment, anger, all these things come up. And you, you, instead of awareness, you forget all about that and get whirled away into the vortex of your feelings and thoughts. So that's a hell realm, and you'd be sitting in this, in this uh, temple, you know, with everything, you know, around you, uh, supporting uh, practice, peacefulness, and still be in a hell realm of your own making, the tsunami of your mind. So the important thing is to is to recognize this very natural state. Because even a, you know it's 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 natural. It's not not a refined, precious, concentrated state. It's not something that that need, you know needs to be protected. It just needs to be recognized. And so that's what the point of the winter's retreat is, is to recognize it and then to trust it totally. So recognize it, realize it, and then from there you trust that. And, uh, and, and every time you, the tsunamis start coming in, you, your reference point is through the awareness 
rather than through reactivity. And this, I guarantee, will uh, is the liberation that the Buddha was talking about. Because in the realm of samsara, you know, it, it's going to, you know, you, we've all got our vibhaka kama to live through. Uh, the way we are, the way life affects us, the, the cyclones, the tsunamis, the, <coughs> the wars, the difficulties of, of, of life on this planet, planetary life itself, human body, our own personalities, memories, all this are, you know, they are what they are. And it doesn't mean that that awareness uh, annihilates them. Awareness receives them. In awareness, it's it's a receptive state. It's not a it's not a annihilating, destructive state. It's natural. So this is uh, encouragement uh, for this winter's retreat to. To uh, practice not doing anything. <laughs> observe that kind of compulsiveness of winter retreat practice. You know, like the the, the schedule or the 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 form that we use. You know, it's best just to surrender to that form. And then watch, you know, how you, you, you know, you relate to, to the form. You know, the, the, the way, the way a, a schedule, a meditation schedule will affect your mind. Idea of, have, uh, you know, the way we, we, the word meditation, what it really means, you know, what we, how we, how the word meditation can be another attachment, I've got to another compulsion that we create. You know, it's, not, it's just to trust your own ability to observe the way it is, you know. The, not that it should be any other way, but just the way, the way it is is like this. So there's no way, you know, that say it's the, the way it is, say, on the conventional level, is fine. You know, the, the conventions we're in, the, the monastic forms and the situation here, they're, you know, they're, you know, if you think, well, I want better ones, well, then you've kind of missed the point. They're, they're good enough the way they are. Then, then, uh, then observe the discontentment, the resistance or the blind conformity, the fear, the identity, and the uh, opinions that we might have regarding our life and the form that we're in. So I offer this as a reflection for this evening. <laughs>